would stand with me. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans. We are continuing in our Foundations of Faith series in the book of Romans. We are in chapter 7 today. Romans chapter 7, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're actually going to read the whole chapter together. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7, verse 1. When you got it, say so. so. And it says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she will flee. She is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we have held by, what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known what covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was produce, producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, though through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal sold under sin for what i am doing i do not understand for what i will to do that i do not practice but what i hate that i do if then i do what i will not to do i agree with the law that it is good but now it is no longer i who do it but sin that dwells in me for i know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells for its will is present with me but how to perform what is good i do not find for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members." O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. God, thank you so much for your word that is true. Thank you so much for your great, great grace, God, that you have given us, that you have shown us. 
And in this day, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, God, that you would open our ears, that we would be able to hear from you and respond to you in faith, giving you glory, giving you honor, God. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you do not have an outline, please raise your hand. We want the ushers to be able to get you an outline so that way you are able to follow along with uh, the introduction and that you'll also be able to take notes. And as always, I encourage you to utilize this outline to help someone else grow in their faith. And so we're continuing in our foundation series. And um, this week we're in chapter 7 and we're going to go through the whole thing. We have a lot of ground to cover. Um, and and, and and I, and I, I love um, chapter 7. I love the book of Romans. I've enjoyed this. I hope that you have enjoyed this study as we've been in here and going through this book. But it has encouraged me in a great way. Um, chapter 7, such a powerful chapter reminding us of, of powerful truths and um, some realities in our lives, right, that we all struggle, which is what I want to talk about today. The saying is the struggle is real. And so that's what Paul agrees with in this portion of Scripture, that the struggle is real. And so we all have that. Carl Barth, if you look at your outline there, He's a Christian author, and speaking of choosing the will of God says it is a revolt against disorder. And so what Carl Barth is trying to say is that when we choose the will of God, I'm reading a book on um, Jesus' plan for your life. It's one of the books I have to read um, in, in, in Bible college here. And as I'm reading through this book, they're talking about the prayer, the Lord's prayer that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke. And when Jesus is praying, there's one portion of this prayer. You know the Lord's prayer, right? Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and, and thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the point that the writer makes is that Jesus, in, in, in giving us this prayer, what he is doing is he is not simply giving us a model to pray after he is showing us a way to live our lives and if you will sit down and you will look at each and every one of these statements that Jesus makes in this prayer and try to live them not just pray them but actually try to live them you're gonna live a life that brings glory and honor to God and so when you come to the portion where you say thy will be done it is us making a choice to either walk in the will of God or to walk in our own will it's either or we either do what God wants or we do what we want this is what Paul is is struggling with toward the end of this chapter. And so Carl Barth says that when we choose the will of God, we are revolting against disorder. Notice that when God created everything in the beginning, everything was good, everything was orderly, everything was perfect, his will was perfect. And then Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what happened is disorder entered in. All of a sudden, relationships were strained. All of a sudden, fear came onto the scene. All of a sudden, things were not so clear any longer, and they started to notice stuff that didn't even matter to them before. Why? Because disorder now entered because sin comes in but the moment that you and I decide that we want to follow the will of God what we're saying is we are revolting against the disorder that the enemy would try to bring into our lives that we are standing against what the enemy wants to do to confuse us, to distract us, to take us away from the perfect will of God. I don't know about you, but how many of you, don't raise your hand to this question. This is rhetorical, right? How many of you like drama, right? Like probably no one likes drama, right? Like most people, like you may like drama like movies that are drama, right? Like you like to watch a drama there. But in your own life, like no, I don't think anybody really likes drama, right? And, and I know, and I hope none of you have ever been told, man, you just love drama because if you you've been told that you might need to repent come on now 
right? Because there may be something going on with you where you need to recognize, man, I don't know, there's something happening that I seem to, you know, in, in, uh, bring drama into situations. But the reality for us is this, is that Romans 7 is probably the realest, most drama-filled portion of the Bible thus far. It is, as one commentator said, the backstage of life's drama. I don't, I don't know about any, anyone in here, but I'm, I'm not a guy that's ever been part of, like, drama clubs or anything like that. My daughter is, however, and, and she doesn't, do, and she is the type of person, she doesn't like to be in the front, right? Like, she's not going to just take front roles and stuff like that. They try to push her into doing, you know, roles and plays, and she's like, nah, I'm good, and she'll do parts, but she really enjoys working in the back, you know, because she likes to, um, I guess she's controlling, I don't know, but anyway, um, so don't tell her I said that. You could tell her. You could tell her. Bishop said you're controlling. But and anyhow, maybe you know she got that from somewhere. I don't know where. Um, but but nonetheless, um, you know she she likes to run stuff, right? So she's in the back. But she explains to me. So when you and I go to a to a drama, like you know something that's happening on a stage, what we see is everything in front of the curtain. Everything is played out well. Everything has been rehearsed for weeks. And these people know their lines. And, I mean, they are on it, right? I mean, they're doing things that are, I mean, are great. And everything looks so orderly. But in the backstage, if you were to walk backstage during what is happening on the front stage, you would be overwhelmed with the chaos that is really going on behind the scenes. She does makeup, and so she's over here, and, and, and people are coming to her that in one scene over here, they were doing this, and then they got to go to the back. They have to have their makeup redone, so she's got to rush to do that. And you notice, you ever notice, like, have you ever watched these dramas, like, in school plays and stuff like that? And these kids, especially, like, high school, like, you know, maybe younger is not so bad, but, like, you get to, like, middle school, high school, and you see these kids, they were out here in one set and they look like this and they come out to this next set and they look totally different and you're like how did that happen in such a short period of time boy it was tough somebody was back there and I, and I want you to know that in the backstage things don't look pretty they don't look like they look on the front stage and it's the same thing with our lives like if we're really honest about stuff on the front stage you know what people see in us most of the time is good most of the time it's not the drama most of the time they see the positive things even though we may go through things in our lives they don't see what's really going on inside of us like there are moments that I know man if people could read my mind boy <laughs> Amen. Amen, right? Like if people if people could read my if people knew what I was thinking. Look, if you knew what I was thinking sometime, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. I'm just being honest with you. If you knew some of the thoughts, some of the things that happened, I mean, that happened, the struggle is real, right? There, there's something that goes on. But here's what I want you to think about this morning. God doesn't fear the drama of our lives, but offers us victory in the struggle. God does not fear the drama in our lives, but he offers us victory in the struggle. And so you know what? If people knew what you were thinking, they may not want to be around you. If people knew what I was thinking, they may not want me to be around them. But you know what? God doesn't fear the things that we're going through. He doesn't fear them in any way, shape, or form. What he wants to do is he wants to offer us the victory in the struggle that we're going through. He wants to give us the victory to overcome whatever it is that we are experiencing, whatever it is that we are going through. And so as we go through chapter 7, here's we want to look at these things here. So the first thing I want you to repeat after me is this. Say, rejoice in, rejoice in. our release. 
Rejoice in our release. And so Paul is doing what? He is continuing on using analogies, helping us understand how it is that we can become more like Christ. That's what this is about. You're going to see when we get to chapter 8, there's portions of scripture that talk about predestination. And predestination is speaking to the believer. And it's about one thing. And I'll point this out again when we get there. It is about us becoming more like Christ. That's what it's about. It's about us being conformed to the image and likeness of the Son. That is what sanctification is, right? It's becoming more like Jesus. And so Paul is showing us how this is possible. And so in chapter 6, he broke it down. He talked about us being set free from sin, being set free from our sinful nature. We've died to the sinful nature. And he continues to drive home. He used the example last week we talked about slavery. And we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. And this week, what does he do? He opens up chapter 7 with another analogy to paint the picture, and he uses the analogy of marriage. And he says in marriage, what he's saying is, you that know the law is what he says in verse 1 there. He's speaking to those who know the law. So in one side, he's talking to the Jewish people there. But in general, he's speaking to everybody who knows the law of the culture. If you are married, in our culture, this, this remains true as well. If you are married to someone and you have sex outside of marriage, then you are what? You are an adulterer. If you divorce someone, right, in a, in a biblical sense, now in our culture, this is different. In a biblical sense, if you divorce someone, without biblical cause and remarry. You know what the Bible says? You're an adulterer. I know, I know we don't want to hear that, but that's just what the scriptures teach. God's standards are much higher than our cultures. In our culture, you can go ahead and get divorced and nobody's going nobody's to label you, hey, you're an adulterer because you were married before. They're not going to do that, but the Bible says something different. Marriage is serious. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, I want you to think about this. Here's the picture. The picture is while you are married, you are bound to a law which is that that's your husband or that's your wife. But here's what I want you to realize as well. Inside of this marriage, there are certain laws within this marriage. It's not just that that's your husband or that's your wife legally, but there are certain things that are expected, right, within your home. Like we have, like in our home, we have certain things that we have divvied up, right? Whenever I do premarital counseling for, for um, you know, for couples that are going to be married, we always discuss the, um, the, the, the logistics of what the home is going to be like, right? Because here's the thing. In my home, I hate and I have always hated and will always hate washing dishes, Amen. Glory to God. Right? Like, like I, I'm down with disposable dishes for the rest. We ain't ever got to have fine china, y'all. I'm just saying, like, I don't even care. It doesn't matter to me. Like, I eat, I, anyway, I, I, I don't like doing that. I have never, I've never been like a, a, a person who enjoys washing dishes, right? But on the other side, there is something that I do enjoy. I do enjoy washing clothes. I, I enjoy that. Like, I feel like that's an okay thing, right? And so it's not a guy thing, a woman thing. It's just I enjoy doing that. Plus... I really enjoy doing it because I like to lay my shirts flat, glory to God, when they come out of the dryer because I don't like to iron. Are you here? And if you don't lay your shirts flat and you don't fold your clothes immediately, guess what you have to do? You have to do something else that I don't particularly like. It's iron. Come on now. So, so we discuss certain things, right? Like this is what we're going to do. I'm going to wash the clothes. That's, what, that's what's going to happen. We are going to, these are certain, we, we divvy up stuff. There are certain expectations. I'm not a guy that cooks. My wife is the one that's going to be the primary cook in the house. It's just what's going to happen. We would all die if I was the one cooking. I'm just saying, or we'd be broke because we'd always be eating out. But, but either way, right? Like, like that's just, that we, we, we've divvied this up. This is just how our house works. Now, if I were to die or my spouse was to die and one of us were to remarry, guess what? In this new relationship, there'd be different laws in the house. There'd be different expectations in the home. 
And what Paul is saying here is he's saying this is what occurs. If one, and, and he breaks it down because he gives you the biblical reason why you can go ahead or one of the biblical reasons why you could remarry. And it is because of the death of a spouse. And what he says is he says, listen, if, you are if, if that spouse is still alive, then you're bound to that law. But if that spouse dies, you're free to remarry. And be married to another. And what does Paul tell us? Paul tells us, he's like, look, here is what happens. If this happens, then you're free. You can go ahead and read. Let's look at verse, verse 4. Verse 4 says this. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. And so what does he say? He's like, there was a death that occurred. You were married to the law. You were bound to the law for salvation. You were bound to the law for your life. Everything you had, if you did not obey the law, then you were not going to, there, there was no, there was no grace there in that sense that you were just going to, you know, there's grace obviously because God provides sacrifices and opportunities where God offers forgiveness, but it's not, it, it's a different scenario there. You're bound by the law. You have to do everything in the law. Under the law, you have to do everything that it says because if you break one part of the law, then you're guilty of all of it. That's what the Bible teaches, right? And so what Paul tells us is that we have died to the law. There's a death that occurred. Jesus died, and guess what? Now we can be married to another. And so what is the struggle that the Jews were having is they were having trouble embracing the law of faith. You can write it down if you're taking notes. The book of Romans chapter 3, verse 27, the apostle Paul makes it clear, and we've driven this home, that faith is not a work. It can't be a work because it's juxtaposed in the scriptures next to works. Works are works. Faith is faith. And so what he has here is he's been communicating to these people that have been hearing him and specifically the Jewish minds that are there and saying, hey, guys, you, you, you have to realize that this, is, this, this salvation that is offered in Christ is not according to works. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to be righteous enough to have the favor of God in your life. And you were taught this from, you know, that you could do this, but you can't. But now it's the law of faith. So they were struggling because, you know what, if they left, think about this now. If they walked away from the, the, the legalism of Judaism and decided to embrace the law of faith, you know what would happen? That would be the equivalent of them being adulterers. Are you here? Because idolatry and adultery are synonymous in the scriptures. On a spiritual level, when you are an idolater, when you worship something or someone else instead of God, you are being unfaithful to him. Therefore, you are an adulterer in that sense. And so Paul is saying, listen, you're not an adulterer for letting go of the law for salvation and embracing faith in Jesus Christ for salvation because this death occurred. And Paul goes on to say as he continues on in verse 5, so the first one is what? is that we should bear fruit to God because of this death. So we're giving him glory. And verse 5 tells us, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And so what happened? We talked about that. The wages of sin is death. Our carnal, our sinful nature is going to lead us in a way that we are going to bear fruit to death. That is going to be the result of our lives. I love verse 6. He says, But now. We have been delivered. That word delivered right there, that word is equivalent to the word released. 
you have been released, delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. We were held by this law in bondage to it so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. As I read that, you know what I thought about? I thought about someone who got released from prison. Now, some of y'all don't know nothing about that. Some of y'all don't know what it's like to be incarcerated for any moment of time. Others of you do, like myself. I know what it's like to be incarcerated, to lose your rights. I know what it's like to be in there where someone else is telling you what time to get up, telling you what time you, what you can do, what you can't do, telling you eat at this time, you do this. I know what that's like, and I want to tell you something. I was in no way, shape, or form, the moment that I was released, no way, shape, or form was I thinking about going back there. Come on now. I wasn't thinking about, I want to go back there. I like that. Like, no, 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 uh-uh, no. I, I, I wanted my freedom. Are you here? And this is what God does. He releases us from the bondage to the law, and he frees us by the power of his spirit. That's why the first point is to rejoice in our release. Thank God for setting us free. When we do that, you know what happens? When we realize that we are no longer bound to law-keeping for salvation, we can rejoice. And then we can be empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to live in the newness of life, not in the oldness of the letter, not trying to serve God in our own power, in our own ability, not trying to earn something from God by keeping every single commandment because we're trying to earn it. Listen, I am all for radical obedience to Jesus. Are you here? I'm all for that. If you love Jesus, you should be all for radical obedience to Jesus. This is not some release. And as we're going to see in chapter 8 when we get there, this is not some fake freedom that you're free to do whatever you want. No, you're free from a bondage that you, could not, uh, that you couldn't overcome yourself. You're free from that. You no longer have to try to earn God's favor. The reality of our lives is what? Is that we have been freed into a relationship with Christ. And now I want to live for him. I want to honor him. I want to obey him. I want to do what pleases him, and that is by me obeying his word. But I'm not doing it to earn something from him. I'm doing it because he has given me something. And so the second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, know the limits of the law. Know the limits of the law. Right? In a legal sense, like you need to know your rights. Like you need to know what is okay, what is not okay. You need to know what the law communicates in a natural sense. It's the same thing Paul says here. And so the natural argument goes on. Look at verse 7. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because what they're accusing Paul of is saying, hey, Paul, you're telling us that we don't, know, that we don't need the law anymore. And so what are you saying? That the law is sin? That, the, that there's something wrong with the law? That there's something bad in the law? And what is Paul's answer, answer, answer is? Certainly not. On the contrary, what does he say? He says, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And so Paul goes on and says, no, the law is not bad. The law is just limited. There's a limit to what the law can do in your life. There's a limit to what the law is able to do. And notice as you read through here, the thing that was supposed to give life, in verse 10, look at it, and the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. And so the commandment was supposed to bring us life. It was supposed to show us how we were supposed to live. But the reality that we find is that that life can never be experienced fully because what? Your sinful nature. 
my sinful nature. It won't allow us to experience the fullness. So what does the law do? The law does some other things inside of us. And so what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was given to us not because it was going to save us, but because it was going to lead us to Christ. Because it was going to lead us to the Savior. Because it was going to lead us to God Almighty and his promises. So let's talk about the limits of the law really quickly here. We see a few of them. And the first one is this in verse 7. If you're taking notes, you can see, you can see this here. Verse 7 says what? It says the law, it reveals sin. It doesn't rescue from sin. It shows us what sin is. It doesn't rescue us from it. It shows us this is your problem. It's like saying, yo, you got bad breath, but I didn't do anything to help you. Right? That's all the law does. It just has a standard of what it is. It shows you the standard. That's what the law. The law makes clear what pleases God and what displeases God. In verse 8, what does it say there? Look at verse 8 with me. It says, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me, look at that, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And so what did sin do? Sin comes in, the limitation of sin. It arouses sin. It doesn't disarm it. Are you here? It, it awakens it. It's like when the law comes, it awakens it. And I was thinking about this. I said, man, this is kind of crazy because you ever, you, you ever, you ever, I don't know about you, but there's some moments that you think about, you know, there's something that I want to legislate, right? And when I say legislate, I don't mean like, you know, from a governmental standpoint, just like you want to legislate. You want to say, hey, don't touch this, right? And then another part of you is like, I don't know about you. I just, I think like, so if I'm like, maybe I should just hide that. And I, maybe I shouldn't point it out. Maybe I shouldn't draw any attention to it, right? Because it seems like when someone hears no, something inside of them says, I want to. You know where that came from? I'm going to tell you. That came from the Garden of Eden. You know why? Because they were told no. Now, check it out. You got you to you track with me here. They were told no. And when they were told no, Satan did what? He came over here and he said, nah, man, God's lying to you. And then what they did was they believed the lie. And they did what? They ate of the tree. And so now that stigma stays with us, the sons of Adam. Are you here? And so what happens is the very thing that caused them to fall was a no. That's what it was. Because God said no to them, and the enemy came and deceived them, and they decided, because they didn't have a sinful nature, they weren't battling with that, and they chose to sin against God. And, then, and so now that stigma sticks with us. And you know it. You go ahead and someone, and you, and someone tells you not to do something, something inside you is like, why not? Why can't I do that? I want to do that. Go ahead and tell your kids, for those of you that have kids, go ahead and tell them no about something. Don't touch that. And you'll notice, I, it, it, you know, it never, my mom has a picture of me um, of when I was really young, and I'll never forget, the, I, I don't remember how old I was. I was probably about five years old, somewhere between four and six, I, I think around five. But um, I'm standing, and, and she just caught me on camera. And I was standing in a drawer, and I was looking at something, touching something that I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have been touching. And she caught this picture. And I never forget that picture because I remember I was like, ooh, she caught me. <laughs> like, I knew I wasn't supposed to be in that drawer. But that aroused this curiosity. That is what the law does. It arouses sin inside of us. Verses 9 through 11, and we read this here. And he says what? It says, I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. What is the next limitation of the law? It kills, it doesn't give life. It kills us. It causes us to have this struggle inside of us. In verse 13, look at verse 13. It says, 
Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So what's the other limitation of the law? Sin defines sin, but not just that. It makes sure that we understand how deep our sin is. It shows us how sinfulness our sin is. It reveals to us the gravity of our sinful nature. It shows us where we are in desperate need of Jesus. Those are the limitations of the law. And so here's the thing. The law was sent, like I said there, that we saw there in verse 11. The the, the law was sent, or verse 12, the law was sent to lead us to life. But we know that life is only found in Jesus. And so let's let's just look at this again. Let's just see what Paul's argument is. Paul's argument here is tremendous. The first part of the argument is this, is that the law is not sinful. It is holy, it is just, and it is good. So that's the first part of the argument. The second part of the argument is, but the law reveals sin, arouses sin, and then uses sin to slay us. If something as good as the law accomplishes these results, then something is radically wrong somewhere. Are you here? Right? This thing that is good, that is holy, that is just, it produces like there's some kind of issue. Here is the conclusion. See how sinful sin is? When it causes, causes use of something good like the law to produce such tragic results, sin is exceedingly sinful. The problem is not with the law. It is with our sinful nature. The law is not the issue. The issue is our sinful nature, which brings us to our next portion here. Say this with me. Accept the weakness of your flesh. Accept the weakness of your flesh. And so here is the most confusing part. This is when the curtain is, is, is pulled back completely. And Paul goes through this. He's like, hey, you have died to the law. Or you are no longer in bondage to this law. You are no longer married to the law. These are the limitations of the law. And now he's going to show you, but you got to understand something. This is how limiting the law is. It is because of the weakness of your flesh. And so this, this last point here, it may sound like I'm saying, hey, just be defeated. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm telling you is that if you don't accept the reality of the weakness of your flesh, you will never seek the power of God's grace. If you cannot admit that you, you know, it's kind of like a person who's an addict or a person who's struggling in their life in areas where you just know, like, man, they really need help. But the truth is this, until they realize they need help, you can never help them. You can, you can hand them, you can give them handouts, you can try to make things right, you can have long talks and long conversations, you can cry, scream, yell, punch, kick, whatever. But guess what? Until they realize they need help, they're never going to get the help. And see, this is why Paul brings us to this place. And just so you know, there's some commentators that argue there's debate on this particular portion of Scripture. Some people believe that this is a description of Paul's B.C. life, or this is before you become a Christian, that this is a struggle that's there. But as you read this, you're going to notice there's some things that are impossible because what? Christians don't desire the kind of stuff that Paul is saying you desire. It's not, it's not about a BC life, he's, and, and plus he's using that personal pronoun that is in the present tense, so that shows us what? That shows that he is talking about now, the struggle that is really going on inside of us. It shows us that there is an issue that is going on, so what does Paul say in verse 14? He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And now he didn't say I was carnal, 
I was sold under sin. That's not what he said. He said, I am carnal. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And so he's talking about this, that we know. We talked about death. Remember, we talked about those words death. And death doesn't mean like this annihilation. It means separation. And so I still have this. And I always tell people this that struggle with being um, called sinners and stuff like that as Christians. I, I, the, the issue is this, is that when you stop sinning, I'll stop calling you a sinner. Hello. Right? Like at, like, like at the point in your life when you stop sinning, you can say, I'm no longer a sinner. Listen, I'm not telling you that your identity before God is sinner. It is not. God doesn't see you as his enemy. But you and I have to realize, just like the Apostle Paul does, that the struggle is real. That there really is some drama that is going inside of our hearts. There is something that is happening. And so Paul makes it clear that there is this struggle. And so we see this curtain that is fully drawn back. We see this drama that is there, the clutter, the confusion, the condemnation of the inner struggle. It is made perfect. The struggle to do right is present. This is what Paul is saying. The struggle to do right is present. The law of sin and death are still present. And check this out. They are powerless yet powerful. It's kind of like chocolate cake. Or whatever, whatever you like, right? Because you'd be like, I don't like chocolate cake. Okay, so that doesn't resonate with you. Maybe you like whatever. I don't know. I don't know what you like. But whatever you like, that thing that calls you, like after you went to bed, right, and you're laying down, and you, and, and you know it's in the fridge. It has no power. Like, it has no ability to come and yoke you up and be like, get over here and eat me, right? But it's calling you. Right? It, it, it is powerless, but it is powerful. Are you, are you tracking, right? And so it is this, the sinful nature is the same way. It has been defeated in death. It no longer has dominion over you. And yet it is powerful to confound you and to confuse you and to have you struggling at moments where you're like, man, I want to do right. But I'm struggling to do right because there's something else that is operating in me. These thoughts that continue to come inside of my mind. I want to do the right thing for folks, but man, I wonder if they're trying to overcome. I wonder if they're trying to take advantage. I mean, I don't even feel like doing it. I've done enough. Like all of these different struggles that are going inside of our heart. Because automatically we think, oh, struggle with sin. So you think, oh, well, I don't struggle with that. I don't struggle with that. Man, sin is a whole bunch of stuff. Are you here? Sin is not just the things that God says no to. It's the things he says yes to. It can be you being a person that struggles. Man, you could struggle with being kind. You could struggle with being merciful to people. You could struggle with helping people. Those things are sinful. Why? Because God calls us to do those things. He commands us to care for others. Are you here? And so just because you don't struggle with the same sins that your neighbor does, or how about this, the same sins your spouse struggles with, that doesn't mean you're less sinful. That doesn't mean the struggle is not as real in your heart. Just because you guys don't battle against the same sin. Just because you like chocolate cake and she likes budding. I don't know. Hello. <laughs> or flan or cheesecake or whatever. But there's something that calls you. It's powerless, but it's still powerful is what Paul is saying. It doesn't have the dominion over me, and yet there's a struggle inside of me for this. Our sinful nature does what? It renders the law powerless to produce life in us. The reason why we need Jesus is because no matter how righteous we try to be, no matter how much we want to do the right things, we will never do the right things in a manner that bring him glory that he's worthy of. 
We will never walk in the perfection that God calls us to walk in. We will never obey him all the time the way that God calls us to because our sinful nature is weak and we still struggle against that sin. And so Paul goes on, he tells us, for what I am doing, I don't understand. He's, even, he's like, I don't even get it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying like, you've, you've had those moments, right? You don't, you don't have to tell me about them. You have those moments, you're like, why am I doing this? Why, why, why do I think this way? Why do I feel this way? Why am I acting this way? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I got a couple of yeses, so I got an amen in the house, you know. I mean, the, the, it's a reality. Like, man, this, this is a real thing that's going on inside of us. Paul's like, man, I don't even get it. Why does, why does he not get it? Because he knows the truth. You died to those things. You died to your sinful nature. Those things, God made an end of those things, and yet the struggle is still there. And so Paul tells us, in what can be known as some of the most confusing language in the planet. I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. And so my, my, my disobedience, right, he says, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. And so when I sin, my sin shows the law is good. I'm not. I'm the issue. The law is not the issue. God doesn't have to change the law. That's a problem with some of us. We want the laws to change for us. We want God to lower his standards and say, hey, God, I can't get there anyway. You died for me, so it really doesn't. No, it does matter. Paul shows us the heart. See, there's not this struggle in there. When you're not a believer, there's not this great struggle like that. Like, you may want to do some good stuff, but you're not trying to live like this. Like Paul is saying, like, there is a real desire to live holy, live righteous. That's why we know he's talking about the struggle that every believer has on some level. But now it is no longer I, verse 17, who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so again, you have died to your sinful nature, and yet that sinful nature is still there. He goes on and says, for I know that in me, now check it out, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good is not, I do not find. See, Romans chapter 6 was about us learning how to stop sinning. Romans chapter 7 is about us being able to do what's right. How do I do what's right? The struggle is that. How do I do what is right all the time? How do I obey God completely and fully? And Paul goes on. He continues to communicate with us. But then he comes to this place. Look at verse 24. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. This is the, the, the climax of his frustration. This is the, the climactic moment. Oh, wretched man that I am. Not oh, wretched man that I was. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Who will save me from this body of death? And when you look at, when you, when you read and, and you look at history there, what's, what, what would happen is at those times, and one of, one of the, the, the ways that they would torture people to death literally is that they would tie them. And I read two different ones. One of them was that they just said that they would tie a dead corpse to a person until that person would experience the decay from that dead corpse and then they would die like, you know, through gangrene and different things like that. That was one of them. But another commentator wrote something that I thought was pretty terrible. Even more than that, I mean, that sounds terrible, but they, what they would actually do is they would actually tie you face-to-face -face with the corpse. And so you would have to be there not just feeling this, but smelling this, experiencing this. And I think that one is more appropriate for what Paul is trying to say. This isn't something that's just a monkey on my back. This is something that is a battle that is in my face. There is a battle in my face. That's why he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? 
this thing that causes decay, this struggle that I feel. And I love what he says in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what, what, what is he saying? He's saying he's the deliverer. He's the one that sets us free. He's the one that broke those chains. He's the one that gives us the grace to overcome this. And then he closes and he'll lead us into chapter 8. He says, so then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So in my mind, in my heart, in my inner man, I do what? I serve the law of God. My heart has been changed, and I want to do what is right, but my flesh, it still wants to serve the flesh. That's just the way that this is going to be until we receive the glorified body. And I love this quote. The old nature needs, knows no law. The new nature needs no law. The old nature knows no law. The new nature needs no law. Why does, what, what is he saying? The old nature, it's not going to bow to any laws. It's not going to do. I mean, that's one of the arguments that we have about making laws in our land, right? Laws don't change people's hearts. I would agree with that. Laws are still good, but nonetheless, laws don't change people's hearts. But you know what, what does? God changes people's hearts. Then I don't need a law to tell me to live righteously. Because what? Because I want to live righteously for his glory and for his honor. When you and I can rejoice like the apostle did in our salvation in Jesus, we will live in the freedom that he has afforded us. And this freedom is what? That's the motivation for our obedience. When we can rejoice in the fact that we have been released from the bondage to the law, then we can be like the Savior. So here's my closing question for you. Where is the struggle the realest in your life right now? Where is the struggle the realest in your life right now? I don't know where it is. I don't know what it is that you are going through on a personal level. You may be struggling with some real deep sin that nobody knows about. God knows about it. God knows what's going on. God knows what's happening inside of your heart. You may have everyone in your house. You may have everyone in your workplace. You may have everyone in this church. You may have everyone fooled, and they think that you are holy, righteous, living for the glory of God. There's no sin going on inside of you. God knows the truth. God knows what's going on right here. And, he, and listen, he doesn't love you any less because of it. He wants you to know. He wants to bring you the deliverance that you need. But you have to recognize the struggle is real and his grace is sufficient. Why? Because where we struggle the most is where grace has been, has been embraced the least. Where we struggle the most is where grace has been embraced the, the least in our life. And so what we have to do is we have to embrace the grace and the goodness of God. And I say this in closing. It's not by submitting to outward laws that we grow in holiness and serve God acceptably. But it is by surrendering to the indwelling spirit of God. I'll say that one more time. It is not by submitting to outward laws that we grow in holiness and serve God acceptably. But by surrendering to the indwelling spirit of God. And so here's what I'll say. If you are a child of God in this place, if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus in this place, here's my challenge for you. My challenge for you is that this week would be a week that you would, first of all, bring that struggle that you have before God in prayer and really say, God, this is a real thing that I'm battling with. I don't want to ignore this anymore. And then secondly, learn to surrender to the Spirit in those moments. Don't depend on your own ability. That's the struggle that Paul had. Our flesh is incapable of obeying God's commands. Our flesh will only do it for certain moments, certain times when we get something out of it. Listen, that's why we can be good people when there's something in it for us, right? Like, you, like, like, listen, you'll be a great husband or a great wife when you're getting something out of it. Come on now. 
But when you're not getting something out of it, it's just a day-to-day, just like, uh, am I going to be great? Yep, the struggle is much greater. But when you know, like even your children, you, you see this with your children, right? They, 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 they may act a fool. They don't want to clean their room. They want to, you know, they want to do certain things. But when they know that they're about to get something, all of a sudden, they, they straight, they write. Because they know something is on the other side. And for us, we have to be what? We have to be motivated by the mercy, by the grace and the goodness of God so that way we can serve him in the newness of the spirit. And so that's my challenge. If you are there, recognize the struggle. Bring that before God and look for the way that, God, I want to surrender this to you. I, I, I can't do this on my own. And then follow him in those moments. So look at where is it that you're struggling? Where is it that you're battling? What is it that you're going through? Surrender to his spirit in prayer and worship and look at those moments when you can say yes to him and you know that he's right there because you know what when you're in the middle of that struggle he's right there to give you victory he's right there to give you victory and if you're in here and you're not a believer if you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus then my call to you is put your faith in him today trust him today because here's the reality the reality is that you're rotting away in sin You are in bondage to this sin. You are in bondage to rebellion against God. And today is the day that God can save you. Today is the day of salvation is what the Bible says. Trust him today with your life. Surrender to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so very much for your love, for your grace, for your kindness toward us. Thank you, Jesus, for delivering us from our sin. Thank you, Jesus, for delivering us from the power, from the dominion, from the authority of the law over our lives. God, thank you, Jesus, for filling us with your spirit. Lord, I pray today for those in here that do not know you, for those in here that do not have a relationship with you, God Almighty, may you rescue them today. May you release them today from their sin. May they come to you. May they humble themselves before you and cry out to you, God, for deliverance. And Father, for my brothers and my sisters that are in here, that Lord, you know when I ask that question, where are they struggling with the most, that thing popped up in their mind. That situation popped up in their heart. God, may you give them the grace this week to surrender it to you. May you give them the ability this week to submit it to you. May you give them the ability this week to trust you in those moments and to follow your direction. Lord, help us to become more sensitive to your ever-present direction that is with us, God. Help us not to live in our own abilities, but let us live in the newness of the Spirit. Father, we thank you for this. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Come on and give God a hand of praise.